I was worrying so much that I was realizing that it was taking up a huge part of my very thought processes. You know, morning, noon, and night, I was thinking about the past, worrying about the future, and I was starting to realize that it was actually starting to affect my problem-solving abilities so that I could simply work it out and put a period at the end of it and move on. That's our guest, Dr. Jamie Candelaria-Green, talking about why she felt she needed to start meditating. This is the Bounce Back Generation podcast. I'm Jennifer Dillon. Pretty much everyone who practices meditation will tell you it's great. It changed their life and brought much needed peace. But if you're anything like me, you want to know how it does that and why it works. Dr. Candelaria Green is here to talk about her meditation practice and explain how to start your practice and why, from a scientific perspective, meditation works as a tool to cope with persistent worry, negativity, stress, and traumatic memories. Dr. Candelaria Green holds a PhD in special education and is a board-certified educational therapist in private practice. She's known for her research in Central Africa on the mountain gorilla population, all of which inform her research into mind-body and psychophysiological disorders, which means she's an expert in learning, achievement, and behaviors. She and our previous podcast guest, Dr. Winston Kennedy, co-wrote their seminal work called Societal Pain in 2022, which you can find on Medium. Before we start, I wanted to find two terms we refer to a lot in this podcast. It's the sympathetic nervous system and the parasympathetic nervous system. As with all of our mind-body functions, they can be complicated, but here's how I think of them. The sympathetic nervous system kicks in when our brains and bodies recognize some trigger that says that there's a threat or danger. It's what causes us to go into fight or flight. Then I think of the parasympathetic nervous system is like the paramedics. They come in to help us cool down that high stress state. I began by asking Dr. Candelaria Green why she chose to start a meditation practice to manage her out-of-control worrying. Being an educational researcher, I, I looked to the research, and about that time, more and more was coming into the research about the helpfulness to the body and mind when we do mindfulness and mindfulness meditation. And so as luck would have it, around that time, a Buddhist group was doing a simple community outreach about providing these free mindfulness meditations in our community. And I thought that I would attend and, and find out more about it. And what I started to notice fairly quickly is that whether I was meditating in a group or if I were meditating just by myself with a simple little candle in front of me for about five or six minutes in the morning, I, I would notice it just gave me a little break 
from my worries? I have to say that I find the same things. One is the ability to turn your brain off. And I think a lot of times what we do is find substances. I could just drink a lot, do something crazy that gets my mind out of my worries. And and what ends up happening is you create more worry when you do things like that. And then that connection to our ability to think better and, or just organize our thoughts better. And I don't know how that works in our brain, what's happening in our brain, but something happens where suddenly things that seem disorganized and, and, and crazy making feel calmer and more organized. I'd love it if listeners could reflect back on what they needed to get through school. And when I think of that, I think of A's, B's, C's, and D pluses. Think of how they they stand for something that'll get us through life. And in this case, the A is going to stand for attention, where we're putting our attention. And that's going to affect what we learn and how we feel. And the idea of attention is very central to mindfulness meditation. And the second thing is B, the letter B. And in this case, that's going to stand for breath and breathing, because we know that breathing, how we breathe is going to play a powerful role in how we deal with stress. We can use it to give us quick energy, and we can also use it to calm ourselves down. And that leads us to C, which is calming the central nervous system. It allows for more access to decision-making and reasoning and problem-solving. We'll even We'll even talk about how calming the nervous system down can affect sports and learning and other things. And then the D plus in this case simply stands for do positive things for ourselves and for others. And that's going to help our brains and bodies too. Uh, Acts of generosity we know can make a huge difference in our well-being. Because, of course, when you do have even little moments of rest or breathing or other things we'll talk about today, again, sure, the, it, it gives the brain the ability to, to recoup energies to be able to problem solve. I get confused myself about... The difference, if there is one, between mindfulness and meditation, is there a difference? I mean, sometimes we call it mindfulness, sometimes we call it meditation, sometimes we call it mindfulness meditation. What is the distinction if there is one? Yes. Well, well, let's talk about mindfulness first. I like this, this one definition, bringing awareness to the present moment on purpose and without judgment. And when I think of mindfulness too, I think about this one wonderful psychiatrist named Viktor Frankl. 
he was a Holocaust survivor, and he lived in four concentration camps. He was a guy who wrote Man's Search for Meaning. And this is what Dr. Frankel said. Between stimulus and response, there is a space. In that space is our power to choose our response. In our response lies our growth and our freedom. All of us have daily stresses and traumas and even even those neural networks, those, those patterns, those patterns that are developed from mechanisms that are all designed to protect us from danger or overwhelm or shame. And all of these triggers can just gobble up that space between, as Dr. Frankel says, stimulus and response. That if, if we don't have that space, we run into the risk of reacting in ways that we know are unproductive and sometimes disastrous if we're not careful. So, so right. basically having that space, having that mindfulness helps empower a person to slow down. Yeah, it's like someone says to you, I, I was minding my own business and then so-and-so came up to me and said something before I knew it, bam, I, I smacked them or I didn't know where that came from. Well, that's, uh, uh, that's that not having that space in between the stimulus, the thing that triggered you that you may not even be aware of why it triggered you. It just exactly. And and like you said, we're we're attuned to protect ourselves. I mean, that's kind of the basis of who we are if we boil ourselves down, is that we have a mind and body that's uh that even subconsciously is always scanning for protection and safety. And yes. if we even get an inkling deep down inside somehow I'm not safe even feelings like you said shame can make you lash out immediately without understanding why and so then that mindfulness time that that practice starts to create that space in between why was I tricked you know why was I tricked you start asking those questions let's talk about what happens in your body when you do that the mindfulness or and or meditation practice what is actually happening to help your body stay calm? We kind of tend to think of mindfulness and meditation as just being out for your head. Do you have any examples of how mindfulness can calm us down, calm down that central nervous system? I sure can. Um, remember at the beginning, we were talking about this aspect of attention, just paying attention and how that's going to have a central role in in calming down and i think about how several years ago but i was at my daughter's convocation ceremony when she was a freshman at college and this is a very fancy solemn occasion when professors walk down in their robes and greet the freshmen at the university. And I was in the audience and I was so proud of my daughter and I became overwhelmed with emotion. And I realized that I was on the brink 
of melting down in tears. And the last thing you want is for your daughter to look up and think, oh dear, what's wrong with my mom? <laughs> Fortunately for me, I happen to be standing right next to my sister who happens to be a psychologist. And I said, help, help. And she said, Jamie, look down at your shoes. And I immediately looked down at my shoes. And then she asked oh. me a series of questions. She said, for example, what color are your shoes? And how shiny is the fabric? And how does that fabric feel on your toes and your heels? And how many inches do you think are from your big toe to your small toe or your big toe to your heel? And just by her asking those questions, I wasn't even answering them aloud. But just as I turned my attention to something that that wasn't as emotionally charged as seeing my wonderful daughter be in this great place, my my central nervous system just started calming down. It was as if I had been looking at white, fluffy clouds in the sky even after about 30 seconds that enabled me to calm down and to start taking in the moment and enjoying the ceremony that's a really wonderful trick that you can carry in your back pocket so if you feel overwhelmed by anger sadness shame, you know, kind of these really deep, sometimes overwhelming and maybe out of control, that, that that's really what mindfulness is in so many ways is just being able to focus in a way that allows you to get yourself kind of back in order. Is that yes. Yeah. And, and one central component of mindfulness is where we're putting our attention. So what's actually happening in the body and the brain that causes this shift? As soon as our brains get the idea that we're in danger or if there's high emotion, an automatic system called the parasympathetic and the sympathetic nervous system come into play. And the sympathetic nervous system is designed to just kick into action in moments of stress. And so our heart rate goes up and our blood pressure goes up. Even our number of breaths per minute go up and it's all designed to protect us. Now, if it senses high emotion, tears can start happening. And it might not even know the difference between whether I'm at a funeral of a loved one or in a happy occasion, such as a wedding or my daughter being at this convocation. Sometimes it doesn't know the difference, but it just kicks in. And it depends on the parasympathetic nervous system to be able to calm us back down. There are a number of ways to do that. In that instance, I was able to just look down at my shoes and, and take my attention away from something that was so emotionally charged. 
However, another go-to way to, to kick in that parasympathetic nervous system that helps calm us down is simple breathing. And the noted musician, Levi Huffman, who's also a performer, has a wonderful idea for just taking us out of sympathetic to parasympathetic during the day. He suggests, for example, putting a little post-it next to your rearview mirror in your car. And every time you come to a stoplight, taking three full deep breaths and then exhaling just a few seconds longer than your intake breath. And that alone will help shift you during the day from your sympathetic nervous system and response and responding to, to stress, et cetera, to the more calming parasympathetic nervous system. This is how I think of it. So tell me if I'm wrong, that kind of we're going through our day and there are parts of us that are scanning and, and taking in what's coming at us, the stimulate from outside the world. And sometimes we can get overwhelmed with fear or feelings of vulnerability or other kind of very strong emotions. And that comes from the sympathetic nerves kick in and say, okay, maybe go into fight or flight, or you get a little bit anxious or, you know, something starts happening. And then you have the parasympathetic, which is, as I understand, a little bit that stuff that we can kind of control, which is how much we're breathing. Are we sitting down or doing things that kind of can calm us down, like a mindfulness exercise, doing some counting. That's the famous way, count to 10 before you say something. And that starts to allow us to have some control to bring ourselves back into a sense of balance. Is exactly. that kind of a way to describe oh, it? Exactly. Exactly. And remember that we all need our, our sympathetic nervous system because as a species, we wouldn't have been able to survive without it. We, we need those shots of adrenaline that the sympathetic nervous system produces in case we run into a tiger or we run into a bully and we need to defend ourselves or other things. But to have those constant states of stress aren't good for our brains and they're not even helpful in the short run, because they do other things as well. For example, people might not be aware of how it can even affect your vision. We know, for example, that if you go into a state of fight flight, that you can develop what's called tunnel vision, your periphery. Uh, you're, you're not seeing as well on the sides as you ordinarily would because all of your attention is straight ahead to battle that opponent. Also, memory takes a dive. Different kinds of memory, short-term memory, and your working memory are sacrificed too because all of your energy is devoted to just get out of danger. This is something that I try to share, especially with our young people that we talk to, is just 
how often we have these automatic responses and it can often feel like ashamed of them. Like, oh my God, why did I shut down, for example? Because we, we have fight or flight and then we also have this freeze response. Yes. You know, someone said something to me and I just froze and I didn't say anything back and I didn't know what to say. And you just get that horrible feeling of just like cold water washing all over your body. And then afterwards you say, why didn't I do something? Why did I say something? I'm just, and then you feel more embarrassed. And I just try to show how our bodies and our minds are really set up to try to protect us. It's just such a loving thing in a way that our brains and bodies do to try to protect us from things that are really just terrible or not nice or just or harmful to us or that could feel harmful or could remind us of something that happened. And so we should be getting to know ourselves better and understanding those responses because it just shows how we're set up and how protective we are for ourselves. And that goes along perfectly with this idea of do positive and say positive things to yourself because that and when you mentioned about freezing yeah it's part of your brain doing the very best it can it knows what to do to take care of yourself at the moment an extreme of that sympathetic nervous system is not only this idea of fight or flight and freeze as you say but also collapse where in the worst case scenario, the individual collapses and, you know, or the passes idea out. it passes out. Mm-hmm. You know, you hear about playing possum, but part of it is where the, the system just is so overwhelmed that it collapses. Being compassionate towards yourself that this is part of our bodies and brains that that take care of ourselves. And yeah, sometimes it doesn't have good outcomes, but it's doing the best it can. So that's mindfulness, that kind of that ability to be in the present moment and recognize that something has triggered me and there's a space in between before I react where I can get some sense of balance over my reactions, those automatic reactions. So how is that different from meditation. Mindfulness meditation, when we think about a meditation, that's an actual exercise. Think of it as a a practice or a tool or a format to, to explore and expand and develop mindfulness. And of course, as we talked about before, mindfulness is simply increasing our understanding of our behavior. Uh, The practice of mindfulness meditation just focuses on building awareness and acceptance of the present moment. And basically, by practicing this, we're just working to strengthen those neural networks of attention and concentration and calmness, like anything else, like learning a second language or playing chess or perfecting tennis. You're just making those neural connections stronger and stronger. There there are some common elements of a group practice, for example, where you're sitting in comfortable clothes, you're paying attention 
to your environment, which is hopefully neutral, not too many extraneous sounds. Think of it as the ultimate safe space <laughs> where they're agreed upon. I'm not going to hurt anybody physically or mentally. This is a, a safe space. Although it, it can certainly be practiced independently as well. So meditation is like you are going to the gym and you're doing weightlifting exercises so that when the time comes when you need to hit the ball really hard or do something, you've got the musculature to do that. Meditation is like the gym and mindfulness is the practicing, the ability to then utilize the skills that you develop, those muscles that you developed in meditation. You think that's an apt way of looking at it? Yeah, that's great. As a learning specialist who works with students and adults who are going to college and just folks trying to take good care of their brains for the long haul, my, my feeling is that I can't not mention mindfulness meditation because there's so much information about how it helps the body and mind. It helps the students learn and pay attention. It helps them on tests. And even when it comes to student athletes, I was thinking about, for example, last night's game with the Warriors. And I was thinking about Stephen Curry and how one absolutely needs to have a calm central nervous system because if they don't, they're simply not going to be playing as well. And one example of that is that as we were talking about earlier with this tunnel vision, that can happen when your sympathetic nervous system kicks in and you're in high fight or flight. Stephen Curry wouldn't have been able to see, um, to, to have his peripheral vision. He wouldn't be able to have seen this huge range of um, what was going on on his side if he were in that state of fight or flight. And he was able to take advantage of memory skills where certain players were and what their strengths and weaknesses were. All sorts of things kick in functioning on all cylinders. But just think about how much more mental space you would have if you weren't worrying so much think that a lot of times young people think that there's just there's one way to succeed there's one way to think and that's also influenced by the way we've set up our schools you do better in school if you're the type of person who likes to sit and listen to someone talk and then do a bunch of homework and there's just there's a process that tends to work for some people and not for others and for the ones who think differently and have a different yeah. process 
they can feel that, oh, I'm not smart. And that's not the case. And I see what you're saying about um, the benefits of meditation for a young person is that it helps to get that intelligence that is just stored up in lots of different parts of our brains to get oh, yeah. it to funnel out into a specific way that can be expressed that other people can see and you can see for yourself. You're just uh, like opening up that treasure chest and meditation helps you do that. Yes, and, and you've hit the nail on the head because there's not just one kind of intelligence. All of us have intelligences and strengths that no one else has. We're all unique. And as an older person, I would say this, we need your strengths and abilities and your unique gifts to pass on to the rest of us, to pass on to humanity and the world. And it's going to be thwarted if one's constantly stressed out. Another aspect to all of this is that at the end of the day, over your lifetime, there's somebody who's going to be with you throughout your lifetime, and that is you. And this is one gift that you can give to yourself because yeah. you're always, you can depend upon yourself. It's one kind act of compassion that you can give yourself to calm down and to comfort yourself. Yeah, that's right. And be your own best friend, you know, yes. and get to know yourself because inside you, if you're not, if you're only focused externally and what other people think and say about you, you're missing the most wonderful friend that you could ever have. And that's the view inside of you. And I realize that there, for a lot of people, there are a lot of barriers because if you've been taught or told that you're not that great or you're not that important or you, you can't do anything right. And some kids grow up like with those kinds of messages. It can be hard, but that's where meditation can help you to tap into the parts of you that are loving and kind and, and can be loving and kind towards yourself. So yes. I wanted to start to, to wrap it up. Can you recommend places where somebody could go to physically learn meditation what were you what would you suggest if someone said i really i want to learn more about meditation and i want to do it in person and and be part of a group and find some place um to to belong and i i want to let you know and also our audience know that we do have meditations guided meditations on our website bbgtv.org and i will put your meditation dr kenalara green on .org just the meditation that we did as well. So people can access that at any time they want to have it. And then we also have our guided meditations in our YouTube channel and the YouTube channel is BBG TV. So where could you recommend if somebody wanted to not just do it online, but to actually have a, a physical experience? I will certainly address that. But before we go, I just want to make sure that folks remember, just review the ABCD plus of attention, breathing, and calming the nervous system, and doing positive acts of generosity towards yourself and others. Just keep that in mind. Yes. So what I would do is I'd recommend these free programs 
basically to get going your wonderful program, but also free programs on the internet. The, the one go-to program is what's called the UCLA Mindful App. And this is great. They have group uh, guided meditations and oh, wow. it's free. It's even in other languages like Armenian and Cantonese. So it's in a number of languages. They're drop-in meditations. It's wonderful. And they're short ones, long ones, etc. We'll put some links in, yes. in the description. Yeah. We always ask all of our guests for this podcast before they go to share who made a difference for you in your life when you were growing up. So when we tell our story of who made a difference for us, it can really help to show how other people in our lives when we were growing up. And sometimes I'll tell you, some of the stories are someone that they met for one time in an elevator and made a huge difference. And for some, it's the people that were there for them every day. So do you have um, an example of somebody who made a difference for you when you were growing up? I certainly do. And I love the opportunity to talk about her. Sister Madeline. I met Sister Madeline when I was in high school. And she she had been a nun, a, a Catholic nun in Belgium during the Second World War, and she had been a teacher of, of students with intellectual disabilities in, in this residential school. It was during the Second World War, and the Nazis wanted to take away these students, and so... Anyway, she led heroic efforts to safeguard these children so they survived the Second World War. And afterwards, she and her order went to uh, my hometown of Stockton, California, and they started doing recreational programs for individuals with intellectual disabilities on Saturday afternoons. And I thought it was fun. So I'd go there and volunteer. After a while, she came up to me and said, Jamie, if we have these residential schools serving students with intellectual disabilities in England and in Belgium, so if you ever want to volunteer, just let me know. So I said, sure, that sounds like fun. Well, I did. I volunteered at the school in England, and I also volunteered at the school in, in Belgium. And that not only solidified my interest into going into special ed, but it had a tremendous effect on my interest in different cultures. And I became actually a French major, French language major in college first, along with going into special education. And I began through those experiences, I began to really appreciate not only how health conditions can affect learning, but also social and emotional influences can affect learning. Thanks for listening to the Bounce Back Generation podcast. Dr. Jamie Candelaria-Green has provided us with a guided meditation that she did especially for us. And 
I don't know about you, but I love her voice. And you can find that meditation at our uh, YouTube channel, which is bbgtv.org, bbgtv.org. And there's a playlist for meditations and uh, Dr. Jamie Cantillary Green's meditation will be in there. So thank you to our guest, Dr. Jamie Cantillary Green, and our producer is Liam Donaldson, music by Jogging Turtle. Please follow this podcast to hear our upcoming episodes about the art of telling your life story, getting through the death of a loved one, and what it's like to grow up in the foster care system. If you'd like to learn more about us, visit our website at bouncebackgeneration.org or our media site at bbgtv.org. You can follow us on Instagram at Bounce Back Generation, TikTok at Bounce Back Gen. If you have a story you would like to share about your own journey to emotional resilience, please contact us at info at bouncebackgeneration.org or call and leave a message at 415-570-8765.